join together around God's Word this morning from Psalm 130, 130. If you will turn there. While you're turning there, let me, let me begin with a, a, a story or, or something that you might be familiar with. My wife uh, did a psychology degree a long, long time ago, and my son is very interested in psychology as well. He's about to embark on a psychology degree, and he was reading a book uh, recently about the inkblot test. Anybody know what that is? It's, it's a kind of a, it's a test that they give to people. They show you various kind of ink blots, and they ask you, what do you think this looks like? And so you get this ink blot, and one person says butterfly, one person says cloud, one person says blood splatter, and they basically, they profile you according to your responses and to, according to the emotions that come from you as you look at these ink blots. And so it, people respond differently depending on, on their experiences, depending on their, perhaps their personalities, depending upon their history. And so you, you look at these pictures and you say what you see, and then someone tells you whether you're crazy or not. You know, that's, that's basically how it works. Uh, now, as I was thinking about my message this morning, I was thinking like, sometimes when we think of the word forgiveness, it's a little bit like an inkblot test. Depending on your personality, depending on your history, depending on what's happened to you and your experiences in life, when someone says to you, uh, offers you the word forgiveness, what's the, it's not audience participation, uh, but what's the first thing that comes into your mind? We would probably, in a group this size, have all sorts of different responses and different emotions to the word forgiveness. And if we shared them all, some people might think we were crazy, or some people might cry with us about our experience. Some people might rejoice in our experience of, we're just so grateful to be forgiven for the things that we've done. It, it can mean many different things to many different people. You know, it's one thing to forgive someone who is late for a meeting or who opens their door in a, in a parking lot and smashes into your car and leaves a mark. You can, oh, I could forgive that. But it could be a different experience to try and forgive someone who has profoundly or deeply or repeatedly hurt you. But as Christians, forgiveness is central to our experience of life, and it's essential to our experience of God. It's at the very heart of our relationship with God. So I think we all need to be very clear about what forgiveness is from God's perspective. We need to be very clear about what the Bible teaches us about the forgiveness that we receive as Christians and that then we can extend to others. And we need to be very clear about what forgiveness is so that we can experience it, rejoice in it, and tell others about it. So this morning, uh, from Psalm 130, we have a psalm here that provides us with help and insight and wise counsel and faith-building encouragement for us to see God's perspective on forgiveness. Now, Psalm 130 falls into a category of psalms uh, that started in Psalm 120 that finished in Psalm 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. 
They are songs, a kind of a playlist that the Old Testament Israelites gathered together. These are songs that they would have sung as they journeyed from wherever they lived in Israel up to Jerusalem for the various feasts and festivals and times of celebration that God called His people to in the Old Testament. And these were songs that were filled with uh, faith and and that would have filled them with faith and anticipation and eagerness to go and meet with God's people. They were songs filled with truth, songs that reminded them of the privilege of being God's people and gathering with His people to worship Him. And our psalm this morning is one of those. So will you read God's Word with me together? Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My my soul, it waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He, He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. May God bless the preaching of His Word. If you go back to verses 1 and 2, what you find is we meet the psalmist who, and he is, as the Brits would say, he's down in the dumps. Now, they didn't have that expression back in uh, ancient Israel, so they said he was out of, out of the depths, he cried to God. And that just means that uh, what you should imagine is, uh, do you watch, anybody watch movies, disaster at sea movies, you know, those kind of things where, you know, there's always a, a, a a portion of, of the movies, these disaster at sea movies, where the hero and his or her companions, they're either trapped in a cave or they're trapped in a boat or they're trapped in a submarine and the, and the place that they're in is flooding and the water is rising and it's getting higher and higher and higher and, you know, the people are, you know, it's getting up to their necks and they, and they tilt their heads and there's just this little gap of air and then they're, they're about to die and then something miraculous happens. That's the kind of image that you should imagine in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist here is in the depths of of despair. The the word depths there is always used in the Old Testament in regard to the sea. Uh, And it, it was not a good place, the sea, for Old Testament Israel. It's not like Laguna Beach, which I got to see yesterday, or Newport Beach, and you go, wow, this is amazing. It's surf and sunshine and fun. No, in the, for the Old Testament people of God, the sea was a place of danger. So when Daniel has a vision of four evil monsters that are going to plague the world, they come out of the sea. When uh, John in Revelation 13 sees the beast 
emerge onto the land to threaten and oppress God's people. He comes out of the sea because the sea was a place of danger. It was a place of storms and destruction and chaos. And so you, have in your, you should have in your mind this idea that the psalmist is just feeling further and further out of his depth with, with trouble that's kind of brewing around him, that the waves of the sea, are, the billows are just piling into him and pummeling him and making him feel despair and a sense of overwhelming so that he begins to cry out to God for help. And the, the kind of the repetition of the, of the Hebrew poetry is just designed to kind of uh, heighten the urgency that we are supposed to feel as the psalmist. He's like, he's out of his depths. He can't see the bottom. He can't touch the bottom. He, he can't swim. He's, he's going to be drowning if someone doesn't throw him a lifeline. And he realizes that the only person who can is God. So he calls out to him. Now, Hopefully, if you're tracking with me, the question that you should have in your mind is this. Why? What is it that is causing him so much distress? Now, if you read through the book of Psalms, you will find Psalms that, uh, where the psalmist is expressing worldly fears and, and anxieties about what's going on around him. And you can read Psalms there where the psalmist expresses his uh, struggles with physical pain or illness or impending death. You can read Psalms where he is lamenting the threats and the opposition and the persecution that he is experiencing. But none of those things are in this Psalm. You see, there are certainly Psalms where that is the case, but the thing that is responsible for the Psalmist's great distress can be discovered in the question that he offers in verse 3, if you look with me. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. It's one that doesn't need answering because it's obvious. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? So the psalmist is feeling distress and despair, and he's overwhelmed, and he's weighed down, and he feels like he's drowning. Because he realizes if God kept a record of all my sins, if he kept a ledger of all my transgressions, if he kept account of all of the things that I have done that I should never have done, and if he kept account of all the things that I haven't done that I should have done, and if he was to write a list of all the occurrences of my lust and anger and greed and deceit and pride and lying, and if he'd have if he kept a careful watch on all the shameful things that I have said and thought and the ways that I have acted and the attitudes and the motives with which I have done them, oh, I'm in bad, I'm in big trouble. That's what he says. So it's not temporal trials, real and painful as they are and, and expressed in other Psalms right here. He is completely overwhelmed with the sin and guilt that he feels before a holy God. So he basically cries out, Lord, if, if you kept a record of sins, I'm dead. How can I ever come into your presence? How can I ever stand before you? Now, we're not told in the Psalm whether it's uh, 
whether he's overwhelmed with a sense of kind of a, a back catalogue of, of sins that, you know, li perhaps little small things that add up and over time the cumulative effect of sin just begins to weigh him down. We're not told whether it's that. We're not, neither are we told that it's one particular event or one particular episode in his life that really is like it, it torments him and he just can't shake it. Could be one or the other, could be both. But he feels distressed almost to the point of death. What can a holy God and a sinful person like me have to do with one another? If God is, if he was to deal with me according to what I deserve, oh boy. I don't want that. It would be better off for me to be at the bottom of the ocean, dead. He's aware that, and I think Dustin referenced this in the singing, in one of the things that he said, that our greatest despair should not come from external trials and difficulties as great as they might be, and I don't want to downplay them. But as Christians, really, the weight that we should feel most is, my goodness, I have offended a holy God. And the consequences for those sins are more dangerous than any temporal suffering or situation or circumstance that I will face anywhere else. It's pretty heavy stuff, and that's just two verses, three verses. But the psalm doesn't end there, does it? Which is glorious because it ends at verse 7 and 8. Now, if you go to, if you just go, scroll down to verse 7, it's like, hang on a minute, I feel like I'm reading a different psalm. Because here he is, hope in the Lord. The Lord, there's steadfast love and plentiful redemption, and he's rejoicing. And there's hope, and there's faith, and there's encouragement. And you get this sense as he says, like Israel, like he's looking around the room, like, hey, everybody, listen, hope in the Lord. Let's hope in the Lord together. And so the next question that we should be asking ourselves is this, what's made the difference? What has made the difference in eight verses where he's going from, I need to die because of my sin, to, hey everybody, life is good and glorious and wonderful. What's happened? Well, sometimes I wonder if the psalmist is like me, or if I'm I don't often wonder whether I'm like the psalmist because I know the answer to that, no. <laughs> but most of the time I think, I wonder if he's like me, and then I realize he's not. But, you know, when I am confronted with my sin, there are a number of ways in which I try to deal with it. And maybe you're the same as me. I'll just throw out some of them, uh, see if you identify. It didn't take me very long to come up with this list, to be honest, right? So when I'm, when I'm confronted with my sin and guilt and I become aware that I have transgressed God's standards and laws and commands and have failed in my obedience, I deny my sin. No, I didn't do it. Nope, that wasn't me. Must have been some other British guy. <laughs> or I can excuse it. And I can say, yeah, do you know what? I, I, I did do that, but that's because Mike did this to me. It's his fault. Or I can redefine my sin. No, 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 I was not angry. 
I was just frustrated. <laughs> or sometimes I ignore it completely. What? What just happened here? Nothing wrong. Nothing to see. <laughs> or I could lie about it. Or I can try and shift the blame to someone else. Or I can just cover it. Or sometimes when I feel guilty, I try and escape my guilt. I turn on the TV. I get on Netflix. Put my earphones in, my AirPods, and listen to a podcast. I watch sports, play video games with my boys, go hunting, whatever it might be for you, I don't know. Fishing, not hunting, no. <laughs> That's what you do in Pennsylvania, I learned. <laughs> yeah, it's a different world from the UK and obviously from California. <laughs> but I can be tempted to escape my guilt. I could be tempted to try and drown my guilt out. Oh, I just need chocolate. <laughs> or ice cream. Yeah. Some people turn to beer. Some people turn to prescribed medication. Some people turn to illegal drugs. Sometimes I'm tempted to externalize my guilt. No, I'm the victim here. Or I... It wasn't me, it was him. If he hadn't done it, I wouldn't have done this. Or I can wallow in it. Get caught into a cycle of self-pity. And feel like, okay, I just got to go to the gym extra early tomorrow. I don't do this, but I got to go to the gym <laughs> early tomorrow because I got to just put in extra time to make myself feel better. Or I've got to work harder. I've got to put those extra hours in. Or I've got to do community service. Or I've got to go serve at the church. Or I've got to just go read my Bible and pray just harder and longer and stronger. All, they're all things that I do to try and bring the balance of my sin back into sort of, you know, equilibrium. Here the psalmist doesn't do that. Because he knows that all his own efforts to escape or deny or to excuse or to ignore or to cover over or to justify will fail. There's no hope to be found in those. There's only one place he can go for hope. And so you notice the psalmist, as he asks the question in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He doesn't look inwardly for the answers to like, well, maybe I could stand. Or, hey, Eric, what do you think? Do you think I could stand? He goes to God and says, Lord, I couldn't stand, but I know something about you that makes all the difference. Look at what he says in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the turning point of the entire psalm. That makes the difference between the despair of verses 1 and 2 and the joy of verses 7 and 8. With God, there is forgiveness. And that's a statement that just means that the authority and the power of pardon belongs to God. That the forgiveness that we need permanently resides. It's in God's possession to distribute as He sees fit. The psalmist realizes that the God who is holy is also a God who forgives. 
And he grants forgiveness so that people like the psalmist, so that people like me, so that people like us might draw near to God in faith. He grants forgiveness to them, to, to men and women like you and me, so that we might fear him. And that's a, that's a word that is supposed to mean a, a reverential awe, a, a, that we might draw near to worship him, that we might draw near to him in relationship and communion that recognizes he is a holy God who forgives. Now, back to the inkblot test at the beginning. When I say the word forgiveness... Here's how we're supposed to understand it. There's three observations that I just want to draw your attention to that are found in verse 4. And you think, man, how's he going to get three points from one verse? Well, God's Word is so rich that you can. And here's the first observation that I want you to see about God's forgiveness. It's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. Now, it doesn't, when you read verse 4, it doesn't say forgiveness for this sin or forgiveness for that sin. In fact, what we miss in our English Bibles is that there, the word, if I was to read it literally, it would, it would say this, but with you, God, there is the forgiveness. It's a kind of a definitive forgiveness. There's a forgiveness that is available to all comprehensively. It's a forgiveness that sets no limits. It's a forgiveness for anything and everything. It's a forgiveness for anyone and everyone. It's a forgiveness for sins committed at any time and every time. There's a sufficiency to God's forgiveness. It's a, uh, that there's no quotas for forgiveness. So God doesn't come along and say, well, it's, you know, it's Thursday afternoon. And I just used up the last of my forgiveness on Eric. Because he had a lot of sins. There's none left for you, Mike. No, God's, God doesn't work according to quotas. His forgiveness is sufficient. It's comprehensive for all sins, for our every sin and our many sins, for all people who will turn to to Him. So maybe you're sat here this morning and you can identify with something I said earlier, which is you just feel the weight and the burden, the kind of crushing burden of the, the, to quote, small sins that have this cumulative effect on your life, that they add up and they just weigh you down. And you think, oh man, can God forgive me? Or maybe you sit there this morning and you are overwhelmed by one particular event or situation or circumstance or episode in your life that continually torments you. I'm here to tell you this morning that God would want you to know that He can forgive you of either kind. Whatever you have done, whoever you are, God's forgiveness is comprehensive. He is able to rescue us from all our sin and all our guilt and all the punishment that we deserve. There is no depths of the sea that we might be in where we cannot cry out to God for mercy. And when we're talking about forgiveness, we're not talking about the kind of forgiveness that kind of sweeps that it under the carpet and, you know, it's left there and maybe we'll trip on it in the future and it'll all come back out. No, the forgiveness that God offers is not a pretend forgiveness. It's real forgiveness. That actually He puts your sins away as far as the east is from the west. There's no double jeopardy in God's economy. 
when he forgives, he forgives completely and comprehensively and fully and freely. Second observation about God's forgiveness is, is that it's always available. In verse 4, the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness. Our English Bibles put it in the present tense. There is forgiveness. But the Hebrew again is much stronger because it, there's no tense. It just says, with you, the forgiveness. Which means that forgiveness is not confined to the past things that you have done. It's not confined to the, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago when the, the psalmist was writing and 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking on the earth. No, there was forgiveness then, but there's forgiveness now too. And it doesn't mean that there's just forgiveness in the future either, that somehow, you know, we just have to sit and wait with our fingers crossed and just hope that God is as good and as gracious as He says He is. No, the psalmist wants us to know that there is forgiveness now. It, with you, there is forgiveness now. And it includes all the past things that you've done. It includes all the future things we're yet to do. But it, can, it can be yours right now. It's not a one-time offer. It's not a once-in-a-blue-moon incredible deal that if you don't get in on it now, you will miss out forever. There's still time. It's always and freely available to those who call out for mercy. You see, God is as forgiving now as He has ever been or ever will be. And forgiveness for you and me is not designed to be a gradual process. It's supposed to be instantaneous. It's available now. Now, again, if you're like me, sometimes I process forgiveness like this. Oh, of course, I'll be forgiven then when I don't do it anymore. Jesus would say to me through this psalm this morning, no, you can be forgiven now. Oh, of course, yeah, of course I'll be forgiven in heaven when I see Jesus face to face. That'll be glorious. He says, no, you can have it now. I think, oh, do you know what? Yeah, of course I'll be forgiven when I've lived the life that a Christian is supposed to live. Then, then God will forgive me. He says, no, you can experience it now. Maybe, maybe when I don't feel as condemned as I do right now, maybe I'll experience forgiveness then. Or maybe when I've improved and got my act together. Or maybe when I, I'm just kind of, I've experienced some victory in, in conquering my besetting sin. Or maybe when I just feel closer to God, then I'll be forgiven. Or maybe when my devotions are more consistent. Or maybe when my kids behave. Jesus would look at us all this morning and say, no, you can have it now. With you there is forgiveness. I, I don't know how you walked in this morning, whether you're a Christian or, or whether you would consider yourself not to be a Christian and you're just exploring the whole church and Jesus thing. It's great if that's you and you're here this morning. You can be utterly ignorant of the Bible. You can be a complete novice when it comes to theology, but what you need to take away with you this morning is, is this one simple truth, that there, with God, there is forgiveness of sins for all those who cry out to Him for mercy. And that could be you this morning. But you need to cry out for mercy. And that leads me to my third observation. 
God's forgiveness is received by faith. If you look with me in verses 5 and 6, the the psalmist says these words, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Now you could read Psalm 130 and you could think, I don't really understand what he's talking about there. Okay, so I get he's crying out for help. I get that he realizes his sin. I get that God is for, forgives him. I get that there's joy at the end. What is this bit about waiting? What, what's that about? I thought you just said I, forgiveness is available now. Now you're telling me I have to wait? No. Here's what the psalmist is doing when he says, I wait for the Lord. It's, a, it's an exercising of faith. It's an exercise of faith. He is trusting in God. And he says, I wait for the Lord. My, my soul waits for him more than watchman for the morning. Now, I don't know whether you um, know what that means, but uh, in medieval Europe, where I have had the privilege to travel on vacation with my family, you go up onto these walled cities. And this would be true, I think, in ancient Israel as well. There would have been cities in the countryside that have walls around them to protect the people who live in the city from intruders. And they usually have like towers and turrets, and at night when the city is most vulnerable because it's dark and you can't see approaching armies, someone would be stationed on the top of a tower to be the watchman, to look out into the dark, to strain their eyes and look around and see, is there an approaching army that we should be worried about? That's, so the, the psalmist is saying, I wait for the Lord like a watchman for the morning. He's saying, I'm on the tower and I'm looking out and I'm stretching my vision and I'm looking to the horizon and I'm looking into the dark and I'm trying to see if there's anything coming. I'm looking, I'm watching, I'm being careful. My eyes are peeled. I'm, I'm, I, I've got an eagle eye on what's going on because I want to I know, I want to see, I want to be ready. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? But maybe, got sports fans? Do you have sports in California? A few? I don't know. You don't have hunting, so I better just check, otherwise I'm going to look like a real idiot. <laughs> so, uh, since I, I, I mean, I like football, but the proper kind where you actually use your foot to play. Uh, but I have discovered that you have a sport that's called football that doesn't involve feet. But, oh, except for one guy who kicks the ball. But, so... And Philadelphia Eagles, they were in the Super Bowl last year, so I'm, I obviously am a glory supporter and a, and a Philadelphia Eagles fan now. But I watched some games, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but what I noticed is that during every play, these men all line up on a line, and a line of scrimmage, is that right? And they are waiting for the quarterback to give the signal for the ball to be snapped, and then they can run. And he throws it, and hopefully they catch it, and you score. But if you, if you watch the game, there's all of these guys, and they're on their toes, on their tippy toes, just waiting to go. Like, say the word, and we're going. Say the word, and we're going. Say the word, and we're going. And he says, hut, and then they do their thing. <laughs> you know? It just looks like organized chaos to me, to be honest. Uh, that's an expression. That's 
kind of like, I, I think, what the psalmist would write if he was writing the psalm today. Be on your toes. Be ready. Now, if you're not a sports fan, maybe you like baking. I love the, the we call it the Great British Bake Off. I think you call it the British Baking Show. Is that right? Yeah? I, I like that as well. But, you know, I like food. Uh, that's why I like that. But, you know, you watch the baking show and they mix up their mixture and they put their bread or their, their biscuits or their, their cake in the oven. And then, have you, do you know, this is the bizarre thing that I, they sit there and they watch. <laughs> like the oven is somehow like going to, like it's like a TV. They sit and they watch. And they watch, and they watch, and then they open it, and they close the oven door, and they open it, and they close it. That's the kind of waiting that the, if the psalmist was writing to us today, he'd be like, watch, wait, just like a British baking show contestant. Be ready. Be watchful. It, it's a call. Waiting is not just a sit in the back, you know, like, oh, I'm bored. When is this going to be over? Come on, Jesus, return. It's an, it's an exercise of faith. It's like, get on your toes. Keep your eyes open. Be ready. He's coming. And forgiveness is received by faith. It's received uh, it, as we exercise faith in God, as we actively lean into Him, as we are actively on our toes, as we're as we're watching Him, as we're fixing our eyes on Him. That's how we receive forgiveness. It's an act of faith. And you notice that what He calls us to put our faith in is, the psalmist says in verse 5, my soul waits and in His words I have hope. In the promises of God I lean my whole weight. Weight as in W-E-I-G-H-T. So think about the image now of the psalmist as he's going up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the context of the psalm. He's going up to Jerusalem surrounded by people. They're approaching because the temple was on the, on the mountain. They're going up. They're watching. They're seeing the temple, the place where God dwells. And as they walk on the path that kind of spirals up and up on the mountain, he's becoming more and more aware of, my goodness, that's where God dwells. And who am I to draw near to him because I've got this backpack of sins that's weighing me down but I know that he's he's a God of forgiveness so I can draw near and I know I can draw near because and he's putting his hope in God's word so maybe he's got things going through his mind like Exodus 34 where God reveals himself to Moses and said I'm the Lord the Lord a God who is steadfast in love and gracious and merciful and slow to anger Maybe the psalmist is, is remembering those words of the Scriptures as he goes up the mountain. Oh, I'm going to worship a God who is steadfast in love, who is merciful, who is kind, who keeps his steadfast love for thousands and he forgives iniquities and transgressions and sins. Or maybe he's trusting in somewhere like Leviticus chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But in Leviticus 4, it's a, it's a lengthy chapter where God commands the kind of sacrifices and uh, sin offerings that need to be made. And if you were to read Leviticus chapter 4, you, you get all of these instructions about you throw the blood here and you do this with this bit of flesh and you do this with this bit of fat. But all the way through, you hear this constant refrain. There's four times. It's verse 20, it's verse 26, verse 31, verse 36, where, the, uh, where Moses, who's writing Leviticus, he says, as you throw this blood on this part of the altar, 
God says, and he will be forgiven. And as you do this with this bit of animal fat, he will be forgiven. And as you do this with this part of the animal, he will be forgiven. So maybe the psalmist has that word in his head. I mean, it could be all sorts of places. Because the promises of the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrificial system, they taught Israel that only shed blood brings about forgiveness. That sacrifice is required for you to be forgiven of your sins. But the one thing about Old Testament Israel and the sacrifices that God instituted is that they, they kept having to be repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, because they, although God had given them these things to do so that they could draw near, they were insufficient in and of themselves to make any real eternal difference. But they were designed by God to point to the one who could. And so as the Old Testament Israelites sang these songs and clung to the promises of God's Word for hope and forgiveness and assurance, you and I this morning have even more reason to be hopeful and to be joyful and to be certain of the forgiveness that God gives because we have the Word in flesh. Remember what John said in first, uh, John 1, 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you've got a Bible, we just perhaps flip over to Hebrews chapter 9 because the writer to the Hebrews, I think, has something to encourage us that echoes the words of Psalm 130. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, <clears throat> the author says these words, verses 11 to 15, speaking about the Word become flesh. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, so that's just a, it's a contrasting image of the Old Testament sacrificial system with what Jesus is doing. It carries on. And he entered into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled of sinful people with the ashes of a heifer could sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So just that's a, the Hebrew author's way of saying they did all of their Old Testament sacrifices and it worked for a time. But then he says in verse 14, but how much more how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will this blood purify our consciences from dead works that we might serve, that we might fear the living God? Therefore, He, speaking of Jesus, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Then flip down to verse 26. 
where it says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not this time to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 130 in Hebrews chapter 9? We, with God, there is forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ. We exercise faith in the Word, just like the psalmist does, but our Word has taken on flesh and then died and then risen again. And His shed blood brings about an eternal redemption for all those who are eagerly waiting for Him, who are exercising faith in Him. So all that the psalmist hoped for and longed for finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. An eternal redemption. Now look back with me if you can, sorry, back to Psalm 130, because we're, we're now just at the climax of the psalm. For having considered his own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God, and having reminded himself that with God there is forgiveness that's comprehensive and all of, always available and received by faith, he then, in verses 7 and 8, basically get this idea that he, he kind of looks everybody in the eye and he says, listen everybody, come with me now to worship God. Because with God we find plentiful redemption. He himself, verse 8, will redeem Israel. He will do the work that needs to be done to save us. And in saving us, He will give us plentiful redemption. I love the company that God keeps. With the Lord, there's steadfast love. With Him, there's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. I love that image. And I think this, you're spo we're supposed to leave with the contrast of down in the depths of despair against the plentiful redemption of God. The idea that though how, no matter how far down you think you are, there's plentiful redemption. You just won't get in by the skin of your teeth. You won't get in by just your backside being on fire. You, there is plentiful redemption. No quotas. It's inexhaustible forgiveness. It's inexhaustible storehouse of grace for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, however many times you've done it, and there is plenty of grace and forgiveness to spare. Isn't that great? That's what we should think about when we hear the word forgiveness. Plenty of God's grace for me. So have you cried out for this forgiveness? That's how I want to leave you with that question. Have you cried out for this forgiveness? Charles Spurgeon, who was a wonderful British Baptist pastor in London, he once said this, it is better to be in the depths pleading God's mercy than on the mountaintops boasting in your own righteousness. So I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, come and talk to someone you saw at the front or you met at the back at the tables. And they, people in this church would be delighted to tell you about the Jesus who died so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And for the rest of us who are perhaps have been Christians for a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, Let's wait on the Lord. Let's continue to exercise faith. It's not something that we just do when we get to the end of ourselves. It's something that we do every single day.
We wait for him. We fix our eyes on him. We watch him. And as we do that, we discover that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word that encourages our hearts. We are so easily weighed down by our sin and guilt, but thank you that there is a, a simple yet profound thing that we can do to be free from that, and that is to look upwards and outwards to our Savior, so that when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who has made an end of all of our sins. May we be aware of your forgiveness afresh and the inexhaustible storehouse of your grace that is available to all who trust in you. And may we go from here joyful in the plentiful redemption we have received. Amen.